morning, everybody. Um, if you feel like you've perhaps already been sitting down for a little while, why don't you just stand for a moment and um, shake your right foot and then your left foot. If you want, turn around. Um, <clears throat> do that if it helps. I don't know. And then sit down again. There we are. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> well, in this uh, series of sermons on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we have in the last two weeks... We've received Christ's teachings on what to do, in a sense, uh, with the evil that we find in ourselves, um, anger, lust, dishonesty. In today's reading, Jesus teaches us how to deal with the evil that we find in others. As I hope to be able to demonstrate, Jesus' teaching is revolutionary. It is revolutionary in the stuff of being all the stuffing of revolutions, turning powers and authorities on their heads, lifting up the humble, casting down the arrogant and the proud. It's incredible stuff. So let's take a look. You might like to follow along in your pew Bible. Um, a new section begins with the words, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Um, the phrase in quotation marks, can be found in several places in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, once each in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, indeed, the quotation is actually an abbreviation. In the Old Testament, the full phrase is usually something more along the lines of how we might find it in Exodus 21. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. However, if you've heard either or perhaps both of the previous two sermons, you'll now understand that Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament, but rather he is quoting the teaching of the scribes, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You see, in their hands, these verses were used permissively. Here, they might have said, here is the very text that allows you to, to, to take justice into your own hands and, and to, to get it back with that guy who sold you the dodgy hammer. To take revenge, in other words. Life for life, hammer for hammer, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, these texts are likewise referred to in much the same way. They're referred to mischievously. Um, some, like the Pharisees, want to use these texts as a biblical mandate for revenge. Others use these texts, they quote them, to argue that the Bible is an archaic and barbaric book, one which advocates for hideous punishments. But both uses are mischievous, and both uses ignore the context. Because these Bible verses in context are not used permissively, but rather restrictively, as restrictions. Uh, reading those verses in context, if you'd ever like to, you'll, you'll see it establishes several things at once. Firstly, the point of the saying is fundamentally this. Let the punishment fit the crime. Neither so lenient that justice is denied, nor so harsh that justice turns into retribution. 
The principle is sometimes referred to as lex talionis. That principle is that punishment should resemble the offense both in terms of kind and degree. So that's the first thing. Let the punishment fit the crime. Secondly, in context, it is always clear that the community must take responsibility for justice through the vehicle of the elders of the village. They are the ones who are to impartially administer justice on behalf of the victim defending their cause. Never is the victim to take matters of justice into his or her own hands. It's to be done for them. Thirdly, the history of Israel strongly suggests that the nation herself always understood these verses to be taken figuratively, not as a literal guide, but rather proverbially. Um, A strict injunction, sure, to be sure, to let the punishment fit the crime, but usually something something was figured out so that a financial settlement could be made uh, by way of compensation, uh, something that might be equivalent, say, to the loss of mobility or the loss of eyesight or whatever the damage done. A financial settlement was the way this was put into practice. Now, given that for us as human beings, uh, we love revenge, we normally call it justice, but actually it's revenge that we love, Uh, And that's reflected in our books and in our television and our films. So many things basically being about revenge. Given our love for revenge, these Old Testament teachings were unique and they were utterly revolutionary in their day. Quashing revenge, preventing interfamilial feuds, exacting justice without allowing for the escalation in hatred and violence that otherwise would just naturally occur, wherein you get feuds between families or villages or or tribes that would last generations. No, this put an end to it. Let, Let the punishment fit the crime. But again, we can be confident that even though these words are found in the Old Testament, Jesus is not actually quoting the Old Testament. No, he's quoting the Pharisees and the scribes, who, it becomes clear from context, used these verses as justification for taking justice into your own hands, as justification for something that the Old Testament unequivocally forbade, taking personal revenge and vendettas. That's how they used it. How does Jesus use it? Well, he tells us, verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Uh, These words do not resist an evil person. They require, actually, they require from us some careful thought as to exactly how we're meant to interpret them. Uh, Leo Tolstoy and Mahatma Gandhi are two famous names out of a great crowd of people who felt that uh, in response to the pure genius in these words, what they ought to be 
how they ought to be interpreted is both literally and universally. In other words, many people, such as Leo Tolstoy and Mahatma Gandhi, have felt that Christians are to be comprehensively pacifist. There is no place, such a view would argue, there is no place in this world for any form of police force or defense force. Evil is never to be resisted, but rather it can always be won over for good. And indeed, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, for example, uh, at the beginning of the Second World War, Mahatma Gandhi wrote various letters pleading with, for example, pleading with the Jews of Germany not to resist the Nazis and pleading with the British people not to resist the German armed forces, nor to respond with any kind of military action. Do not resist an evil person. And many have speculated as to what it may have, might have looked like if this advice had been followed. But we don't need to consider such speculation here. What we need to consider is, is that what Jesus means? And that's an extremely important question. Because if the literal and universal view is the correct one, then that opens up for us a very considerable can of worms with respect to what we teach people to do when they perhaps find themselves in violent and abusive relationships or in abusive and violent situations or what kind of action may we legitimately be allowed to take in defense of others who can't defend themselves. If we take a literal and universal view, there will never be any kind of resistance. But when we look at the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament, we see that Jesus and Paul and the first Christians, actually, they typically reacted to the threat of violence or abuse by leaving. Fleeing is the standard Christian response to persecution or the threat of persecution. Fleeing, it's not the only response, obviously, but it is the usual response. We can be sure then that Jesus did not intend people to hear a command that was to be followed universally and literally in every situation. What did he expect, therefore, people to hear? Well, actually, he tells us because he gives us three illustrative scenarios which illustrate his principle. We've got um, a domestic incident wherein a master disciplines a slave. We've got a financial incident in which a loan was taken out and the person can't repay. And we've got a hassle, possibly even an international incident, where there's a hassle with a Roman soldier from the local battalion. And instantly we can see that Jesus doesn't have in mind what we might call serious or violent crime. Things that would necessarily, in his day, and necessarily in our day, involve the state. Because the world of the Bible knows the state, that being that human institution, kings, rulers, governors, parliaments, etc. We'd include police force, defense force, the state. The Bible affirms the state 
as a human institution created by God, charged under God with keeping the peace, maintaining law and order, and punishing those who do wrong. If violent, serious crime was involved, it would involve the state. No, in the three situations that Jesus describes, no laws are being broken, no laws of Rome, nor no, no laws of Jerusalem in terms of the laws of his day. Let's look a little bit closer. Situation one. Um, you're a slave and you have a cruel master. Uh, you're trapped. Um, you can't run away. If you run away from your master, your life is forfeit. Um, and masters could routinely slap their servants. They did slap their servants, a, a way of indicating unhappiness, perhaps, about their performance at work. Um, sometimes it might be, in, in terms of the sensibilities of their age, sometimes it might be just. You might deserve a slap uh, in terms of... Uh, um, their values, if you were lazy. But to be slapped on the right cheek is to receive a backhander, is to be hit with the back of the hand. Um, not only extremely painful, but actually meant as a humiliation. Physical injury would be almost certain, although not serious. Backhanders were a way of putting you in your place, a way of showing you that you were a social inferior. To be slapped, though, on the left cheek is to be slapped with the inside of the hand, something that was considered to be an acceptable way of disciplining, disciplining someone, but not a humiliation. To offer your left cheek, here you are as a slave, one way or the other, you're getting slapped to your trapped, to offer your left cheek after your right cheek has been slapped is to say, yes, I accept the rebuke, but you will treat me as a social, as a social equal. Situation two, uh, you're trapped. You're a day laborer. Uh, the clothes that you wear are your only valuable possession. Uh, you might have a second tunic, but you've probably only got one. Your tunic is a long garment that goes to your ankles and has sleeves, and it's made out of linen or wool. You also have your most valuable possession of all is your cloak, a heavy woolen outer garment that you use as an overcoat by day if you need it to keep the cold out and the rain off, but that you use every night as your blanket. You sleep in your cloak. If you need to borrow money, perhaps you need to borrow money to feed your kids. If you need to borrow money, you might hand over your cloak as collateral, but the law of Moses requires that the lender gives you back your cloak by sunset, even if you haven't repaid the loan, for otherwise you might freeze. In situation number two, you are trapped. You have taken out a loan, you've offered your tunic as collateral, and you cannot repay. Um, presumably, because he is the lender and you are the borrower, you are poor, but he is rich. He comes to sue you in order to take your tunic, to take the collateral you offered. You haven't been able to repay. Um, 
Jesus says, hand over your cloak as well. Well, to hand over your tunic and your cloak is not only to pay back what you owe, but it is also to cover over. You have covered over myriad expenses, inconveniences. He may have had court fees. He's suing you. Interest on the loan. To offer your tunic and your cloak together is to offer extraordinary, abundant compensation. Of course you are, and you know, as a Jewish disciple, you've got a visual imagination. You instantly realize that you're left standing there in the nude because that's the only clothing you have. Um, And to be stripped naked in front of your enemy is to be a picture of abject humiliation and vulnerability. To be vulnerable before your enemy. To say, there you go, have the lot. Um, Only the most heartless person would not respond by seeing that suddenly actually a few denarii here or there is is actually perhaps not that important next to kids being fed and people not going freezing and subject to the elements. Uh, Perhaps actually now I can see this little financial trade in a different kind of way. In situation number three, you are trapped. This is the privilege of requisition. This is the privilege of impressment. Uh, Roman soldiers in any of the conquered lands, in, to any of the other nations, they could demand of their citizens at any time that they immediately stop whatever it is that they were doing in order to carry goods, your backpack or your, um, um, your weapons, whatever it is. And Roman law, the law of impressment, said that you now had to carry that load for, a, for an Italian mile, 1,000 paces. And we can all imagine instantly the fierce anger and hatred that would be stirred up by that practice. To be impressed into such service was to literally be treated like an animal. You were being treated like a mule. It was to be reminded again of your status, that yes, sure, you might be living in your own land, but you are a slave. And for the Jews, they'd be reminded, we are slaves again, just as we were under Pharaoh before Moses saved us. We are slaves again. And it could happen on the Sabbath, them forcing you to break God's command, the fourth commandment, and forcing you to be unfaithful to your God. And because of this, the law of impressment um, was uh, the Romans knew this is very dangerous stuff. We have to go carefully. All the Roman, Roman governors and administrators, all the way up to the emperor, knew that it was very dangerous to press this privilege too far. It would create riots and revolts. So, so the law was 1,000 paces. But for a Jewish man to go unasked, for a second 1,000 paces, that, that, would, that would be extraordinary. That would make the Roman soldier wonder. He'd have 1,000 paces to wonder what you are doing. Um, and I remember reading somewhere that these brains that God has given us, very limited real estate, you know, it's really quite small, but uh, these are brains, when it comes to feelings, I understand Uh, Many of us can feel uh, many feelings at once, but there are two feelings you cannot feel simultaneously because they occupy the same locus in your brain, the same place, and that is wonder 
and aggression. Uh, so if somebody, if you do something wonderful, they cannot think an aggressive thought to you because you've replaced in their brain one, uh, aggression with wonder. Well, um, these, are, these three scenarios, they are complex and they are nuanced. But I think Jesus is talking fundamentally about us lovingly, prayerfully, creatively, turning the tables on those who misuse power in situations where you are trapped. But when you find yourself trapped, like those slaves, they can't leave the workplace, they can't resign. Those slaves that Peter is writing to in his first epistle, they find themselves suffering unjustly under the hands of a cruel, vicious, harsh master. When you are trapped, when you are suffering unjustly and sacrificially, you can be sure that God is at work redemptively for you. Because that's what the cross is all about. Um, Martin uh, Luther King spent his whole adult life, Martin Luther King Jr. spent his whole adult life suffering unjustly in a situation in which he was trapped for the welfare of others. It was a cross-shaped life. Martin Luther King spent his whole adult life resisting evil by not resisting evil people. Isn't that a wonderful paradox? By not retaliating. By, by, by not taking revenge. Not when he was jailed over 20 times, beaten up, stabbed, falsely accused, betrayed by friends. Not after 13 years of living under the constant threat of murder. No, indeed, he was determined, and he remembered it every day. He was determined to meet hatred with love, to meet persecution with kindness and respect. And he was determined to win two victories, to win the freedom of, of, uh, to, re read, uh, to win the freedom of black people in America through the civil rights movement, as well as determined to win the hearts of those who opposed them as friends in order to secure what he called the double victory. Um, likewise, uh, British theologian Michael Green writes about a black Christian um, leader in South Africa that, that Michael once spoke to, asking him about how he responded to the many occasions when he had been humiliated and pushed around by whites, uh, the man said, when I have been unjustly forced into some menial action, I complete it. And then I turn around and I ask my boss if there is anything else that he would like me to help him with. This totally takes the wind out of his sails. He can hardly believe that someone would respond like that, unquote. He's replaced uh, hatred and cruelty with wonder. But he's done something else as well. Um, uh, grown-ups, what, uh, what grown-ups do, grown-ups help children. Um, if you're a child, that now you know what, why the grown-ups are present. We're here to help you. That's what we do. Not the other way around, although children can be very helpful. Fundamentally, it is the job of 
grown-ups to help children. When the black man responded in that way, is there anything else I can help you with? He made it very clear that he had assumed the role of the grown-up and that the other man, the persecutor, was acting like a child. Um, Children, uh, now in the following comments, I'm not talking about our children, present company accepted, but the childishness of children is found in such things as these. Children fight over whose turn it is, who was their thirst, whether something's fair. Children pinch when pinch back when they're pinched. They tease the one who is different, and they take the biggest piece. Children need attention and approval, otherwise they collapse, and they do. Children do need attention and approval. In contrast, adults can overlook a slight, can handle being ignored. They are concerned for the needs of others. They don't feel insecure in the presence of someone who is different or in the presence of someone who is more talented. Adults don't need attention and approval. Rather, they are the ones who give attention and approval. And so, whenever adults act selfishly or with cruelty or contempt or out of insecurity, they are acting like children, not like grown-ups. And when we respond to childishness in adults, by acting like adults, we will make them ashamed of their childishness. There is an alternative. Uh, There is a decision to be made. There is a choice. Alternatively, we can respond tit for tat, insult for insult. If they, you know, if they insult, you know, scream an insult from the other car, you can wave your fist and shout back. Uh, You might feel better momentarily. Um, We could ignore the person who's just slighted us. Um, Or we could answer back when we're told off. But when we do such things, we must remember something. Whenever we do those things, we are copying them. Because fundamentally, revenge is imitation. And imitation is the purest form of compliment that there is. Indeed, it is an act of worship to imitate someone or something. So our choice is clear. We can either love our enemies or we can worship them and become just like them. It's a point Jesus is just about to make. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Well, again, Jesus is contrasting his teaching not with the Bible, not with Moses or the Old Testament, but with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
love your neighbor, certainly that's in the Bible, Leviticus 19.18, but hate your enemy is most definitely not in the Old Testament. No, in fact, the Old Testament demands that the people of Israel love their enemies, whether that means personal adversaries or foreigners or Gentiles. The law is specific. If your enemy loses his cow, take it back to him. If your neighbor loses his cow, take it back to him. You are to love your enemy as you love your neighbor. The Old Testament is clear about that. But to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they read the word neighbor to mean someone just like me. In other words, a law-abiding Jew. And if we are to love our neighbors, other law-abiding Jews, we must, therefore, it's only right that we hate those who ignore God and we hate those who don't keep the law, that we hate sinners, that is, Jews who don't keep the law, and Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And indeed, Jesus shows the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what he shows them is that they've copied them. They're no better. than the, They behave in exactly the same way as the sinners and the Gentiles. Insofar as tax collectors, the most hated of of, of of all people in, in occupied Palestine, the tax collectors, they do the same as the tax collectors. They, they love only those who love them and they greet only their own people. They're behaving like pagans and tax collectors. They're copying them. And these are the very ones that the Pharisees and the scribes write off as wicked, yet they're no better. We might be tempted to do the same thing. Whoever we might be tempted to write off as wicked, perhaps the biker gangs of Perth or the mafia of Melbourne, within those groups will always find fierce love and loyalty, a, a love for one another within those groups that might put us to shame as a church. And indeed, there are any, numbers of, any number of clubs and associations and interest groups that demonstrate fierce loyalty, faithfulness to the membership, non-judgmental acceptance and unconditional support amongst those who belong to that group. But none of those organizations is there to love their enemies. To, to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute, to, to do good to those who curse, to pray for those who hate you. Now, that, that, would, be, that would be revolutionary. And that is what the cross is all about. Um, the cross is all about suffering sacrificially and unjustly for those who hate us in order that evil might be transformed into good. Jesus suffered unjustly and sacrificially for us in order that we might be forgiven, set free from sin, death, and condemnation. Suffering, sacrificially, unjustly, for to this you were called. Only this is the cross-shaped life, and only this cross-shaped life is perfect. Jesus concludes the whole section with, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Copy him. Be, be sons of God. Um, to be a son is to represent, wh whether you're male or female, 
Um, uh, a son of God faithfully represents the father. What does your father do? He loves those who love him, and he loves those who ignore him, sending rain and sun on them both. Copy your father. Be perfect, just as your father is perfect. Now, I've I mentioned this verse along the way in previous sermons as a verse that might make us balk. Like, how on earth can you be perfect? I mean, if I claimed perfection, I'd either be a comedian or a nut, or perhaps both. To us, the word perfect means to be completely without flaw, totally faultless. It's an absolute. A diamond is either absolutely perfect or not. But the Greek word translated here as perfect is a Greek word teleos, meaning finished, complete, or at the end. As you may already know, um, the end of your chromosomes is called the telomeres, the end, um, uh, teleos, the finished. Um, be finished, just as God your Father is finished. Uh, it stands in for a Hebrew concept which is translated as blamelessness. Jesus is commanding us to be blameless, finished, mature. Dare I say it, he is commanding us to behave like grown-ups. And as we've seen already, haven't we? We've seen that the blameless person Jesus is describing is not someone who is never at fault. No, indeed, for part of the definition of blamelessness is being the person who leaves their gift there at the altar and hurries out of the door remembering that they've offended somebody and they've done something wrong and they're going now to be the first to apologize and to make appropriate restitution for the wrong that they've done against them. That's a blameless person. A grown-up is the first one to apologize. Or... A blameless person is one who takes out a loan and then actually finds they can't repay it, but they make amends when they can. A superabundant compensation. Well, taking these things into consideration, Jesus is commanding us. He's not challenging us. He's commanding us. We're either obedient or disobedient. He is commanding us to act like grown-ups, just as our Heavenly Father is a grown-up, one who forgives and loves, who ignores a slight, who is able to overlook being hated or ignored, one who gives us his attention and approval because we need it without him needing it in return, one who is also always merciful, compassionate, kind, one who gives us uh, Princess Anne frozen two band-aids for our knees when we skin them and who binds up our broken hearts when they're smashed. Well, be finished like God is finished. Be a grown-up. Um, over the last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus' teaching on anger, hatred, lust, adultery, divorce, and oaths, and I've concluded by saying these are difficult texts, but... They offer a revolutionary approach to evil, to the evil we find within ourselves, and they make for a safe world. The texts that we've looked at today offer the same promise, a revolutionary response to the evil we find at work in the world through others. But in following Christ, we make this a safe world. Uh, let us pray.
Dear Lord Jesus, I love you and I love your ways. Teach me your ways that I might walk in your paths. Give me an undivided heart that I might live your commands. Please forgive me for all the times I've acted childishly, even though I'm a grown-up. Please help me to grow up, loving my enemies, blessing when I'm persecuted, helping those who hate me, praying for those who dislike me. And please change this world through me in the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God in Christ's name. Amen.